welcome to the P4C podcast. We are excited to reshare with you the last 13 years of teaching through God's Word at Passion for Christ Summit. Each week, the P4C podcast delivers rich truths for your life, and we know you will be blessed. Our current series is from P4C 2020, Discipleship, Learning to Live in Grace. We now join Micah Cavanaugh for today's message. We hope you are encouraged and challenged. Um, it's really exciting to be back and, at P4C and, and obviously how the year has gone, not knowing how things would go. Um, wasn't sure this would actually happen, so it's kind of cool to see so many guys here. Um, I missed volleyball last night, but uh, my wife and I should be down there tonight to observe and participate in the excitement. So hopefully all of y'all will be there. I heard it was a huge crowd last night, so let's get that out of the way. I'm looking forward to that. And... Uh, seeing how sore I can get because I haven't had much manual labor or physical labor in a while. Um, as my dad mentioned, uh, I'm, I live away from the family, actually, and I'm, I'm not as involved with them as I would love to be uh, over the things that happen with P4C. I work on uh, Capitol Hill currently. Uh, for those of you who don't know, some of you do. Um, and I work for a U.S. congressman. I'm his chief of staff. He's a congressman for a district in Texas. And the last few months, well, really... All of 2020, I think, has been strange for most of us. Uh, no matter what side of the mask you fall on, I think you would agree that it's just been a weird year, right? I mean, it's just been strange. Um, my father-in-law got married in February. My wife and I went on our honeymoon. We fly back in. We get a U-Haul trailer. We pack it full. We put my car on the back, and we drive two and a half days at 55 miles an hour to D.C. from Texas. And that is a trip I told her, God willing, if we both make money, we will never do that again because <laughs> it was horrible. We lost 20 minutes every hour. So like you'd be going and all of a sudden you'd just be like, wait, now it says, you know, 15 and a half hours. And I thought it was only, you know, 14 and a half hours earlier. So it's just, it just kept getting, but anyway, we made it four days later, the world shut down or at least DC shut down. And so we suddenly, I think it was April or May, her dad texted me and said, Hey, how are y'all doing up there? Are you still married? And, uh, and I said, yeah, I said, but I think we've been married eight years in dog years now because it's been literally 820 square feet for, for three straight months. We didn't leave except for walks, daily walks. So we got to know each other really well. I highly recommend spending that much time with your new wife. Um, marriage is good. So far, so good. So if any of you are thinking about it, feel free to take the plunge. Uh, some of you already are uh, moving forward. My friend Bob Minchin actually also works on the Hill, so if you want better stories and more interesting things, he works in the White House, so uh, go talk to Bob. Um, maybe you already have. But anyway, I'll get off all of that. That's kind of where I'm from. That's what I'm doing. My wife is a school teacher there. Uh, thankfully, she was able to take a day off and was able to join us here, so it's kind of neat to, to have her. It's the first year I've been married and, and actually doing events and stuff, so it's kind of just interesting. I told Dad, Dad goes, is it cool? I said, it's very cool. And it's weird, too, because it's just such a transition because you do everything together now. So, yeah, it's like I'm out doing something. I'm like, oh, yeah, I need to text Michelle and tell her I'm, I'm going to be home a little later or something. You, know, it's like you normally wouldn't do that. It's just so many things. But anyway, it's good to be here with you all. Good to see old faces and new faces. And I look forward to having some fun times this weekend. Um, I want to turn our attention for a few moments to uh, a topic that, that Dad and Daniel, well, actually Dad and I specifically talked about because they, they told me kind of the topic they wanted me to talk about. And then I said, well, I'm looking for a scripture or some verses that kind of go with that. And one of the ones that we discussed that Dad and I talked through was, was in Acts. And so I want to I touch on that today. But before I do, I want to ask you a question. And, and I think for each of you, it will be different. Have you ever been hesitant to speak when you know what the truth is? 
you've ever been hesitant, you just didn't want to say anything, or have you ever been in a situation where you just didn't feel like you could say what needed to be said, either in a group, maybe one-on-one? Now, most of us are pretty good at talking about things that we know. If you know about it, it's easy to talk about. You want to talk to me about politics? I can talk to you all day. I wouldn't prefer not to, but we'll probably do that. You know, like we, I can talk. You, maybe, maybe you love cars. You can talk about cars. You, you can expound on the eccentricities of each you know, year that they were made and all these kinds of things. Some, some people are good at talking about anything, and some people are good at just making conversation up out of thin air, right? But when it comes to biblical conversation, especially in a public setting, be at work, secular activities, one-on-one with friends, we, men of God, I hope, here, so often back away from that confrontation, I believe, especially in the public. Evangelism or discipleship is difficult in our day and age. We have a culture that has embraced moral relativism and a church that has not biblically combated that topic. In fact, I was reading, I did a lot of reading in MacArthur and some other folks, but MacArthur said something very prevalent to this. He said, if you think evangelism is something, is a somewhat arduous task in this environment, you're right. We face a culture that has rejected absolute truth and now considers it stylish to openly embrace, embrace, encourage degrading passions. The ecumenical centristic spirit of the age recoils in horror at the exclusive claims of Christ and popular evangelical seeker-sensitive churches only make the task more difficult by refusing to confront sin in an effort to make the unchurched sinner more comfortable. He goes on to say, preaching today is clearly out of season and evangelism is difficult, but that's nothing new. Paul faced worse challenges in his day. He faced an increasingly anti-Christian culture. There was no spirit of tolerance to shield believers from hostility. Yet still he preached the gospel of Jesus Christ, a hard, uncompromising message of repentance. The best illustrated of this is Acts 17, 1634, where Paul faced one of the most intellectually erudite and morally corrupt audiences ever, the philosophers on Mars Hill. And that's where we'll find ourselves today. Acts 17, verses 16 through 34. Let's turn there right now. Paul has... uh, Paul was at Thessalonica. Uh, he just real quickly, he, he was there. He was preaching in the synagogue with some folks. Some folks didn't like that, kind of got upset with him about it. And there was a crowd and they said, we're going to do something bad to you. And so they got him out of Thessalonica. He goes to Berea, Berea and there, guess what? Same thing happens. Don't like him. Got problems with him. So what happens? They rush him out of there. And he winds up, not by chance, but it seems just randomly at this place called Athens, which is the pinnacle of Greek society at the time. And so in verse 16, we pick up with Paul hanging out in Athens. It says this, Now Paul was waiting for them at Athens. His spirit, he was waiting on the folks who he had left because he had fled Berea. His spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? And others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, we, may we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming. For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. So we want to know what these things mean. 
Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. Verse 22, so Paul stood in the midst of the Oropagus and said, men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, Having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, but others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus, Dionysus and Eropagite, and a woman named Demarius, and others with them. Now that's a mouthful. There's a lot there. So um, in the brief moments that we have, I just want to, to touch on a few points here that Paul is discussing and kind of coming before them on. Um, the first thing uh, I want to do, though, is kind of set the historical stage for what Paul is and where he is. Um, I actually had to, I went looking for it and I couldn't find the exact date and I was finally able to get it um, thanks to some, some digging with some help of my dad and some books and stuff. But this would have been about 53 BC. And it would have been about 15 years after Paul's conversion. So he's been, he's been, a, he's been a believer for about 15 years. He's been preaching the gospel and traveling. And the Oropagus, where he winds up here, and I, I got this from the Reformation Study Bible, kind of their little historical section, the name literally means Mars Hill. Now, that, this is a hill. Mars Hill is near the Acropolis. You've all seen the Acropolis in Athens. It's very famous. And in ancient times, the council had met there, and then the council eventually became the city council of Athens. And in Roman times, it was the supervising uh, they supervised the, the, the moral uh, decisions for the city, the education. They were kind of the court, if you will, for the city of Athens. And they supervised religion, and they dictated religion in many uh, regards. And in Paul's time, they would have met in a little place called the Royal Portico, or not so little. And it's near the marketplace just below the Acropolis. So that's the setting that we find Paul. Many modern historians, if you read about Athens at this time, uh, they really believe that Athens was the pinnacle of Greek culture and Greek history. It was, it was really something special to be at. Now, in that understanding, and we see Paul before the Oropagus, so Paul's not, Paul's not hanging out with the old men's club at McDonald's on Saturday morning, right? He's not at the Spit and Whittle Club down at the general store. When it says they called him before and he goes before them, this is a big deal. This is a big deal that Paul is standing before the politicians, the thinkers, the movers and shakers in the Greek culture of his day. So think about that as we move into this. Um, the first thing I want to talk about is the ignorance that Paul faced. 
Paul is speaking with men of deep thoughts, as we've just said, in Greek culture. He's the movers and shakers. And yet he doesn't begin really seemingly with any hesitation. He dives right in. Paul doesn't even hesitate. It has been, uh, he's been brought here, if you look at verse 19 actually, it says, uh, and they took him and brought him to the Oropagos. They took implies action on their part. They didn't say, hey, would you like to come hang out with some of us and tell us what you're talking about? They took him. They said, you're going to go. You're going to talk. And so it was more of a, uh, an emphatic, an emphaticness uh, on their part of him going. So it doesn't sound like a suggestion. Uh, it, it implies action here. And these men want to know, as it tells us, and they asked him, may we know what this new teaching is, which you are proclaiming. In verse 22 and 23, he tells them what he's going to do, and he speaks to their ignorance. Which, and if you look at several different people who, who make commentaries on this, they said this is not him kind of setting the stage in a light way. So when he begins in verse 22, so Paul stood in the midst of the Oropagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. There were religious, uh, literally in the King James Version and some others, it can be superstitious or it can be, it, it's not a term of endearment. It's not saying, hey, you're a religious man. No, it's, I observe you're very religious, slightly sarcastic perhaps. He's setting the stage for what he's going to say to them. He says, for while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, and by the way, that word ignorance is not an endearing term either. This I proclaim to you. So he tells them right there. They know many things, but they are not so learned on one thing. The one thing that they must know to have a relationship with God, who he is talking about here in the next, in the next couple of verses. The reality of this unknown God that they are obviously worshiping along with all their other gods is what Paul is going to try to describe to them and help them understand. So Athens during this time was home to pretty much every little god you could imagine. They had a plethora of gods. It was the city of gods. They had literally areas where you could go and see all of the gods. And if you wanted a god for a particular thing, they probably had it. It's Piccadilly style, you know, gods, if you will. Um, so you can imagine the fact in verse 16, this is the very reason that Paul is actually irritated and confronting them at the Oropagus when he gets there. Because back in verse 16, it says Paul was waiting for them at Athens. His spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing this city full of idols. So Paul's a little ticked right now, and it's because of all these idols he's seeing. Not just the culture, but what these idols have done to Athens and what they are accomplishing. And so it says he was provoked in his spirit because of all the idol worship. But he calls them out not so casually of their ignorance and sets the stage for the rest of his talk by boldly hitting their situation. He hits them right where they're at. So he doesn't just face their ignorance, he almost, I mean, he attacks it as it were. And not attacks in a, in, a, in a physical way, but he comes at them and says, hey, let me tell you something, you're ignorant. And now I'm gonna explain what you don't know. Let me proclaim this to you. The word proclaim is very emphatic as well. He's going to hit it hard. Under this, I wanna look at the reality that he proclaimed. Because the truth is, Paul knew his context and his situation, and he went for it. He tells them that there is a God, not another God, by the way. If you look at the, the verbiage here, he doesn't say there's another God. He says there is a God. It is the God. God. Verses 24 and 25. He says, the God, the God, who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. So he, he 
totally destroys their understanding of all of their gods and says, look, your gods have nothing. This guy is the one who gives life and breath and all things. So your gods are nothing. This is the God. So he sets that stage. And the reality that he proclaims is one that you and I have come to understand very easily. But when faced with people who had never heard or were unfamiliar with it, he goes straight for the jugular and hits them right where they're at. But the next thing is the manner in which he proclaims it. And this is something I, I struggle with often. Paul's testimony is bold. It's bold. It's direct. He doesn't cut corners. He doesn't try to, to, to build them up and then set them up for the kill. He goes boldly in. There is very little in the way of preamble. But since he knows the ignorance and the learned attitude or arrogance of these men, he knows he must get to the point and speak quickly and boldly. Doesn't have a lot of time here. These guys are movers and thinkers. They make decisions. They're creating laws or they're deciding moral issues of the day. They don't have a lot of time. And so he realizes this. He sees his audience. And Paul's not showing pride here. If you look in verse 32, so Paul stood in the midst of the Oropagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe you are very religious in all respects. He gets straight to the point, but not in an arrogant way. He's not showing pride. He has confidence in what he's talking about because of his situation. He has to have confidence. Oftentimes, I think what I struggle with the most is confidence. Because it's easy sometimes to get up and talk about something you're super familiar with, you know. Because I, I can step in front of a group and I can talk about, you know, the pro-life issue. I can talk about taxes. I can talk about deregulation. I can talk about, I can even talk about the oil industry and make it sound halfway decent unless there's somebody in the audience. You know what I mean? I, I, you can, I can talk about some things. But it's hard to speak with confidence and at length about a topic that you're not super familiar with. And here we see he has confidence because he knows his situation. He realizes the setting he's in. In Athens, in the center of the city, there were so many gods that for Paul to speak of a deity was not strange, but common. And for him to speak of the deity is the height of arrogance for these people, to these accomplished men of Athens. If we go to... Uh, I'm looking for verse 18 and some of the Epicurean. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And then they took him. And then if you skip down, it says, may we know what this new teaching is you are proclaiming. And in verse 21, it also says that they, all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there were used to spending their time telling tales and stories. And so this would not be unusual. And so you might expect that they're just saying, hey, maybe this is another God. This is a new thing. Let's have him explain it to us and walk us through it. But he's not just talking about a deity. He's talking about the deity. You and I have the same calling as Paul here in this situation. No matter our situation, you may not feel very bold, by the way, when you have the opportunity to speak. But your calling is to be bold. Thank you for joining us this week. If you have questions about P4C, visit our website at p4csummit.org. Or you can email us at info at p4csummit.org. We hope you can join us next week on the P4C podcast as we listen to part two of this message. May God bless you as you seek to passionately live for his glory each and every day.